a podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with me is my awesome co-host, Lydia, who I'm pretty sure has as much to do with the Santa Fe Trail as this movie. Whoopee! (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Lydia. How have you been? I've been... Holidaying. Yes, <laughs> we're back yes. after a bit of a break. <laughs> yeah, the first time we've got we've recorded together since the new year has begun. So happy new year happy to you! New Hope your year. holidays were fun. Oh, they were holidays. <laughs> <laughs> they were fun. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Yeah, same here. Uh, holidays were just that. They were the holidays. Uh, fortunately, because my family, you know, most of our the young kids are now old kids. It's just really kind of just a bunch of adults and young adults <laughs> that get together, uh, eat sandwiches and talk, and then we all go home. That, that so. doesn't sound bad. I mean, <laughs> no. it was just the two of us and the cat and the lizard this year. So, Oh, you yeah, know? you really did low-key. <laughs> we did. We did. I spent Christmas alone. Uh, there has been, oh, that makes season- it sound sad. There's been seasonal sickness going around it wasn't anybody's fault (laughs) oh gotcha right well i'm glad you're feeling better i'm so happy you're joining me tonight (laughs) thank you i'm happy to be here i'm looking forward to getting this year off to a good start yes this will be an interesting way to begin it (laughs) yes it it will (laughs) not to, to you know not to really give anything away but this is another one where you know every synopsis that we find on this film doesn't really describe the movie you're <laughs> getting ready to sit down all. in for. <laughs> well, before we get into all of that, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Hope your holidays and New Year were fantastic, safe, and fun, and hopefully you guys avoided any sicknesses. <laughs> for any new listeners to the show, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show by visiting Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and now we are on Spotify. And any whatever pod app that you use, you can find us pretty easily. I encourage you to please rate and review us if you can at any of those outlets. Uh, You can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for Orphaned Entertainment. I think we're up to like 145 members on the Orphaned Entertainment group, which I'm (laughs) happy with. That doesn't sound like a big number when you compare it to other groups, but, you know, it makes me happy when I see it. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. We have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe there, and you can watch many of the films that we have covered here on the podcast, as well as know a little in advance what film we're going to be covering next. All these links are on our webpage. Just go to orphanedentertainment.com. So with that, we're going to take a little break, listen to a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we will talk about 1940s Santa Fe Trail. Another five-minute mystery. Good morning, Chef. Morning, Deputy. Ted just called in and said he'd be late. 
Springfield bus from Cleveland broke down just outside of Cleveland and won't be in till 11 o'clock. Well, I guess you and I can handle what little business we get here in Springville until then. Oh, Sheriff's Office. Speaking. James Coburn shot. Be right there. Sheriff, the bullet entered his right temple just over the eye, passing through the head and made its exit from the back of the neck. I knew this would happen to James. You uh, knew this would happen, Miss Alice? Yes. You see, Sheriff, some man in Cleveland had attempted to blackmail James because of an earlier romance. And James had threatened to turn the blackmailer over to the police. Because of that, his life was threatened. I had him come here to Springville to hide out for a while. Deputy, uh, have any strange men been reported in town the last few days? Or have you seen any suspicious characters that might have been trying to locate James Coburn? Oh, haven't heard of a soul except some bum that must have dropped off a freight. A short, swarthy-looking guy. That sounds just like the Cleveland man. James described him to me one day. Don't recall anyone saying he'd inquired about Coburn. Hmm. James always seemed like a pretty upright man to me. Oh, James was a very quiet man, Sheriff. He was just unfortunate enough to have been tied up with this affair in his youth. And then this... This gangster had to try a shakedown on him and ruin all our happiness. We... We were to be married. We were going to be married tomorrow and go to Cincinnati to live. James had a job offered him there. I'm sorry. This has been a shock to you, then. Yes, it has, Sheriff. James had written me last week. He asked me to come on the 8.30 bus today. Then we were going on to Cincinnati this afternoon. Oh, I was so happy. I packed all my things and left Cleveland on the bus early this morning. I rushed right out here only to... to find him dead. Oh, if only he'd gone to Cincinnati months ago as I begged him. It would have been just the same, Miss Alice. Well, it couldn't have been. He'd have been safe there. No. No, you'd have tracked him there and murdered him, just like you did here. Do you know why the sheriff accused Alice of murdering James Coburn? In just a moment, we shall find out. But first... In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. And now for the solution to our mystery. Alice. James Coburn was shot by someone facing him as he sat in the chair. Obviously, someone from whom he didn't fear violence, therefore not a man. You were the blackmailer, if anyone was, Alice. He probably laughed at your threats today, went back to reading, and you shot him. You said that you arrived this morning at 8.30 on the bus from Cleveland. You couldn't have. That bus broke down, and one of my own deputies is still stranded outside of Cleveland on that bus. Come along. All right, welcome back. The Santa Fe Trail, 
stars Errol Flynn as Jeb Stewart, Olivia de Havilland as Kit Carson Halliday, Raymond Massey plays abolitionist John Brown, and Ronald Reagan is George Custer. And we also have Alan Hale, who helps kind of round out the cast as kind of the comic relief department there as Tex Bell. This was directed by Michael Curtis. Curtis? Curtis, Curtis I, think. I think, yeah. <laughs> Curtis, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, a, he was a Hungarian-born director and is recognized as one of the most prolific directors in history. He was already well-known in Europe when Warner Brothers invited him to Hollywood in about 1926. He'd already directed 64 films in Europe and would direct 102 more films during his Hollywood career, mostly at Warner Brothers, where he directed 10 actors to Oscar nominations. James Cagney and Joan Crawford won their only Academy Award under his direction. He put Doris Day and John Garfield on screen for the first time, and he made stars of Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, and Betty Davis. He himself was nominated five times and won twice, once for the for a best short subject for something called Sons of Liberty, and once as best director for Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a big uh, big movie and a big director yeah, there. A bit of a big name. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Now this movie, The Santa Fe Trail, plays fast and loose with historical facts. The least of which is that the real-life Stewart graduated from West Point Academy in 1854, while Custer didn't graduate till seven years later. So not only did they not graduate together, as depicted here, they most likely never even crossed paths. Even after graduation, the two served in completely different units. Other falsehoods include the fact that Stewart's only, only wife was Flora Cook, the daughter of the commander of the 2nd U.S. Dragoon Regiment, and not the fictitious daughter of a railroad owner. The siege on Harper's Ferry, while depicted with amazing action and skill in this film, was not done by the Army Cavalry, but instead was captured by the Marines, who incidentally only had two casualties, one death, one wounded. Some things they did get right was John Brown. He did indeed believe that armed conflict was the only solution to overthrowing slavery in the States. He was responsible for many deaths in his attacks, and his final plan was an attempt to arm slaves and lead a revolt. He was the first person convicted of treason in the history of the country. (laughs) Most historians agree that the Harper's Ferry raid and Brown's trial, which both received extensive coverage by the national press, escalated tensions that eventually led to the South's succession a year later and the American Civil War. Many Southerners feared that it was just the first of many Northern plots to cause a slave rebellion. Brown's actions still make him a controversial figure today. He is both remembered as a heroic martyr and visionary and vilified as a madman and a terrorist. Regardless of the facts or the fallacies, Santa Fe Trail was very popular, due in no small part to the collection of Hollywood stars, and uh, ended up being one of the top grossing films of the year. So we should talk about some of these stars. The stock least of which is Alan Hale. Hale was an actor and director, remembered mainly for his supporting character roles, in particular as a frequent sidekick of Errol Flynn. Hale directed eight movies through the 1920s and 1930s, and he acted in 235 films. And he is, of course, the father to none other than Gilligan's Island-owned skipper, Alan Hale Jr., (laughs) I had to mention him just for that alone. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. You might have a name you may have heard. 
Only if you're younger than us (laughs) or older than us. (laughs) (laughs) He held jobs as a radio announcer at several stations. He moved to WHO Radio in Des Moines, Iowa as an announcer for Chicago Cubs baseball games. His specialty was creating play-by-play accounts of games using only basic descriptions that the station received by wire as the games were in progress. I love that. That is really impressive. It is. <laughs> While traveling with the Cubs in California in 1937, Reagan took a screen test that led to a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers Studios. He spent the first few years of his Hollywood career in the uh, B-film unit, where Reagan once joked the producers didn't want them good, they wanted them Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) He earned his first screen credit with a starring role in the 37 movie Love is in the Air, and by the end of 39, he had already appeared in 19 films. By 1941, movie exhibitors voted him the fifth most popular star from the younger generation in Hollywood. Unfortunately, with the U.S. entering World War II, he was called into service and he was never able to capitalize on his rising stardom on screen. He did become heavily involved with the Screen Actors Guild and eventually serving as the president from 47 to 52 and again in 1959. Reagan would, of course, continue on in small films and television, but found time to get into politics and would eventually become the governor of California and finally the 40th president of the United States. Raymond Massey, Canadian-American actor, known for his commanding stage-trained voice. His first movie was in High Treason in 1928, and in 1931 he played Sherlock Holmes in The Speckled Band, which was the first sound film version of the story. Mm -hmm. Despite him being Canadian, Massey became famous for playing American historical figures. He played the abolitionist John Brown in two films, this one, Santa Fe Trail, and again in a low-budget Seven Angry Men in 1955. Mm -hmm. The character of Brown is portrayed as a wild-eyed lunatic in Santa Fe Trail, whereas he is a well-intentioned but misguided character in the more sympathetic Seven Angry Men. Massey was very well-liked on Broadway in uh, Robert Sherwood's Pulitzer Prize-winning play Abe Lincoln in Illinois. He repeated his role in the 1940 film version for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. Massey again portrayed Lincoln in The Day Lincoln Was Shot on the anthology television series Ford Star Jubilee in 1956, and he had a wordless appearance in How the West Was Won in 1962, and two TV adaptations of Abe Lincoln in Illinois broadcast in 1950 and 1951. And I have to say, as soon as he started talking and when he got on screen in this film, I'm thinking... He would make a great Abe Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> and then I find out that he, he about made he a career make, out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Olivia de Havilland. She is a retired actress born in Japan to British parents. And she is still with us at the ripe old age of 102. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Yes, yeah, she just turned 102 uh, this June. How did I miss last that? Last June, I should say. <laughs> yes. Her career spanned from 1935 to 1988, and she appeared in just 49 feature films, but was one of the leading movie stars during the golden age of classic Hollywood. Although Warner Brothers Studio had assumed that the many costume films that studios like MGM had earlier produced would never succeed during the years of the Great Depression, they nonetheless took a chance by producing Captain Blood in 1935. <laughs> Great movie! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the 
The film is a swashbuckler action drama based on the popular novel by Raphael Sabatini and directed by Michael Curtis. It starred a then-unknown extra, Errol Flynn, alongside the little-known De Havilland. The on-screen chemistry between De Havilland and Flynn was evident from the very first scenes together. The bantering tone of their exchanges in the film, the healthy give-and-take and mutual respect, became the basis for their on-screen relationship in subsequent films. That film was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. In September of 37, De Havilland was selected by Warner Brothers studio head Jack Warner to play Maid Marian opposite Errol Flynn and The Adventures of Robin Hood. Great movie! <laughs> which came out in 1938. The movie, upon its release, was an immediate critical and commercial success, earning an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. It went on to become one of the most popular adventure films of the classic Hollywood era. In a letter to a colleague dated uh, November 18, 1938, film producer David O. Selznick, who was preparing to shoot Gone with the Wind, wrote, I'd give anything if we had Olivia de Havilland under contract to us so we could cast her as Melanie. Jack L. Warner was unwilling to lend her out to the, for the project, and de Havilland had read the novel, and unlike most other actresses who, of course, wanted to play Scarlett O'Hara, she wanted to play the Melanie Hamilton role. De Havilland turned to Warner's wife, Anne, for help. Warner later said, Olivia, who had a brain like a computer concealed behind those fawn-like eyes, simply went to my wife, and they joined forces to change my mind. <laughs> the film would premiere with De Havilland in her coveted role in 1939, and it would win 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and De Havilland receiving her first nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, let's see. Finally, uh, Errol Flynn, Australian-born actor during the golden age of Hollywood, considered the natural successor to Douglas Fairbanks mm -hmm. and made famous with his heroic swashbuckling roles like Captain Blood and Robin Hood. Australian filmmaker Charles Chevelle was making a film about mutiny on the bounty called In the Wake of the Bounty in 1933. Chevelle was looking for someone to play the role of Fletcher Christian, there are different stories how Errol Flynn was cast. According to one, Chevelle saw his picture in an article about a yacht wreck involving Flynn. <laughs> the most popular account is that he was discovered by cast member John Warwick. The film was not a success at the box office, but seemed to ignite Flynn's interest in acting. And in late 1933, he left for Britain to pursue a career in acting. Flynn got work as an extra in a film, I Adore You, in 1933, which was produced by Irving Asher for Warner Brothers. Flynn soon secured a job with the Northampton Repertory Company at the town's Royal Theater, where he worked and received his training as a professional actor for about seven months. He returned to London, and Irving Asher cast him as the lead in Murder at Monte Carlo, a quickly produced film made by Warner Brothers. The movie was not widely seen. It is actually currently considered a lost film. But Asher was enthusiastic about Flynn's performance and cabled Warner Brothers in Hollywood, recommending him for a contract. Executives agreed, and Flynn was sent to Los Angeles. On the ship from London, Flynn met, and would eventually marry, Lily D'Amata, an actress five years his senior, but whose contacts proved valuable when Flynn arrived in Los Angeles. His first appearance in the U.S. was a small role in The Case of the Curious Bride in 1935. Flynn had two scenes, one as a corpse and one in flashback. <laughs> so he definitely started at the bottom there. 
Warner Brothers, while were preparing the big-budget Captain Blood, they originally intended to cast uh, Robert Donnett, but he turned wow. down the role. I did not know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Warner's considered a number of other actors, including Leslie Howard and James Cagney. I'm trying to picture James Cagney in a swashbuckler. <laughs> or even Leslie Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Not working. Uh, they conducted some screen tests of those they had under contract, like Flynn, and were impressed with Errol Flynn, finally deciding to cast him. The budget for Captain Blood was about $1.2 million, and it, weighed, and it made $1.3 million in the U.S. and another $1.7 million overseas, making Warner Brothers a huge profit. Flynn's most famous movie, The Adventures of Robin Hood, playing the title role opposite to Haviland's Maid Marian, was another worldwide success. The budget for Robin Hood was the highest ever for Warner Brothers production up to that point, about $2.5 million. Wow. But it turned a huge profit as it grossed almost that much in the U.S., and I doubled it, another $2.5 million overseas. It was the sixth top movie grocer of 38. I wonder what actually that, that's a lot of money. So that's, that's a the lot six. of what, money. What in the what, devil what came out in 38? <laughs> Should have looked that up. <laughs> in nineteen forty, at the height of his career, Flynn was voted the fourteenth most popular star in the US and the seventh most popular in Britain, according to the motion picture Daily Herald. And according to Variety magazine, he was the fourth biggest star in the US and also the fourth biggest box office attraction overseas as well. So Depending on who, on who you ask, uh, his popularity was a little different, but still very popular. Flynn became a naturalized American citizen in '42, and with the U.S. fully involved in the Second World War, he attempted to enlist in the armed services, but failed the physical exam due to recurrent malaria, oh, which wow. he contracted in New Guinea, a heart murmur, various venereal diseases, oh. and a latent pulmonary tuberculosis. Flynn was mocked by reporters and critics as a draft dodger because the studio refused to admit that their star, promoted for his physical beauty and and athleticism, had been disqualified due to health problems. I found that pretty interesting. Yeah. Either one of those would have damaged his reputation. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And being when, I mean, this was in the height of the studio system where, you know, these stars were properties of the studios Mm -hmm. and you treat... If this was how you marketed your property, you didn't want anything like this coming out. Yeah, Flynn developed a reputation for womanizing and drinking. He was linked romantically with Lupe Valles, Marlene Dietrich, and Dolores Del Rio, among many others. Carol Lombard is said to have resisted his advances. He was a regular attendee of William Randolph Hearst's equally lavish affairs at Hearst Castle, Though he was once asked to leave after becoming excessively intoxicated. (laughs) (laughs) How intoxicated must you be? (laughs) To get kicked out of Hearst Castle. No kidding. Holy cow. The expression, in like Flynn, is said to have been coined to refer to a supreme ease with which he reputedly seduced women. Wow. Though there uh, there is dispute over the validity of this claim. Errol Flynn, however, was reportedly fond of the expression and later claimed that he wanted to call his memoir In Like Me. (laughs) But his publisher insisted on the title My Wicked Wicked Ways. (laughs) While Flynn acknowledged his personal attraction to Olivia de Havilland, 
Assertions by film historians that they were manically involved during the filming of Robin Hood were denied by de Havilland. Quote, yes, we did fall in love, and I believe that this is evident in the screen chemistry between us, she said in an interview in 2009. But his circumstances, meaning being married to Damati at the time, prevented the relationship going further. I've not talked about it a great deal, but the relationship was not consummated. Chemistry was there, though. It was there. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a lot, I mean, a lot more information and stories to be told about Errol Flynn, uh, both on and off the screen. And I encourage anyone, if they are interested, to seek them out. But I've gone kind of way too long as it is. And there is some, I mean... It's not all really good stuff, too. Yeah, there I was going to say, we better side. stop. Hey, that, yeah. uh, that knight in shiny armor is tipping off his white horse there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kind of just hit the, uh, the, some of the, the good qualities. <laughs> Excessively good qualities. Venereal disease. Uh, <laughs> let's yeah, just keep well, going. <laughs> yeah, other than that. Yeah. If you can imagine where those venereal diseases might have come from, you might have an idea about some of the stories that are out there oh, <laughs> or out there about him. But at that, I think we should go ahead and get into this film. I think that is probably some of the most uh, information we've had on stars. This was a really big star-packed film. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like one of these things where I really couldn't just ignore <laughs> any of them. I had to bring them all up. So anyway, Santa Fe Trail, 1940. It opens at West Point Academy in 1854, and we see some cadets during some uh, horseback training. After the training, the cadets are taking care of their horses, and we get the first idea that some of the guys get along great, and some not so much. One cadet, by the name of Raider, has trouble with his horse, and Jeb's... <laughs> And he has Stewart. trouble treating his horse well, is what he has. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and Jeb Stewart chastises him for putting the harness on too tight. You weren't so hard-headed, you wouldn't hurt your mouth. I told you before we started, you had that curb chain on too tight. It's not the first time you've cut his tongue. You ever try putting a curb on your tongue? I suppose it takes one of you southerners to handle a horse. Well, at least we know how to harness them. You know how to harness Negroes down south, too, I hear. With a strap across their back. Come on. When are you going to take a punch at him? Uh-uh. Too close to graduation. Besides, if I've waited four years, I guess I can wait another week. Later that night, Raider is reading a pamphlet, and it gets the attention of Stewart. I'm going to play a clip here of um, Raider leading the pamphlet and uh, St Stewart kind of getting upset with them. And this clip may actually be long because I, I wanted to play this. And then I, after I started listening to it, I was like, I'm not sure where to stop mm -hmm. it. So Bef it may be a little long, so settle in, folks. Bef <laughs> <laughs> so before we do that, let's mention real quickly here. They mention Jeb Stewart. And as they're going through, they kind of roll call a bunch of guys. And among mm. these guys are names like Stewart, Custer. Um, oh, gosh, there's a whole load of them. Uh, Sheridan. Yeah. Um, oh, there is another yeah, they, one. They list a lot of people. What's really funny is most of these people actually existed in history. These the one that didn't very, is, is Raider. <laughs> these are very well-known generals and um, captains from both sides of the Civil War. 
So it, exactly. it's names that I picked up right away. I've got a historian in the family, but a lot of people may not notice what this movie immediately does is puts like seven Civil War generals into the same class. And right. that's where we begin the inaccuracies. <laughs> but they just go through, listen to them all, one after another. So we'll go ahead and play this uh, this clip here. And like I said, it might be a little long, folks. Sorry about that. I just You'll kind of understand when you start hearing some of these clips why I let them run, because there is some crude speechifying <laughs> in this film. A breaking up of the American Union as it now exists is the basis of my plan. And that destruction must be made upon the issue of Negro slavery and on no other. The Union must then be reorganized on the great principle of emancipation. This object is vast in its compass, terrifying in its prospects, but sublime and beautiful in its issue. A life devoted to it would be nobly spent or sacrificed. If the federal government and its constitution are opposed to my way of thinking, the fault is not mine, but theirs. And I shall continue to oppose them with every means and every weapon at my disposal. Who wrote that inflammatory rot? A wise man by the name of John Brown. Where'd you get it? That's my business. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it. You meant it for me, didn't you? Take it any way you like. Sure he meant it for you. He tried that abolition stuff, I immediately found out I came from Kansas. Never mind, Bob. Come on, Jeb, let's turn in. There's no regulation against a cadet having his own ideas. But there is one against spreading treasonable policies. You find the truth hard to take. Hmm? Listen, Raider. I know the truth of this problem far better than you do. The South will settle it in its own time and in its own way. But not through the propaganda of renegades like this John Brown or any of his followers. You mean that renegade line to include me? Look up your oath of allegiance and answer that for yourself. I'll answer that right here and now. I've taken a lot from you southern snobs. For 50 years now, you've been watering your precious family trees with a sweat of Negro slaves, piling up wealth and snobbery until now you think you own the government and the army. And anybody who disagrees with you is a lying renegade, a rabble-rousing traitor. You get this from me, Stuart. And all you other Mason-Dixon plutocrats, the time is coming when the rest of us are going to wipe you and your kind off the face of the earth. Well, Stuart finally has enough and gives Raider a good punch in the face. The other men try to hold these two back, but the two go at it until an instructor finally breaks it up. Stuart, Custer, and the others, uh, minus Raider, find themselves in Robert E. Lee's office for disciplining. And this is another little bit of fallacy, apparently. They have uh, Robert E. Lee as the commandant of West Point, and he was not, at this point, the commandant. He was actually involved in West Point. He was at West Point, but he was not the commandant. Robert E. Lee doles out some punishment for the seven men that are standing in front of him. They will all be assigned to the most dangerous branch of the Army, the 2nd Cavalry out of Leavenworth in the Kansas Territory. And this actually pleases all the men. <laughs> Uh, but they quickly wipe the smiles off their faces after a stern look from Lee. Because, uh, you know, these guys have been trained to be soldiers. They want to go where they can do their soldiering. And, you know, 
the most dangerous place in the country is exactly where they want to go. And they, they mentioned later on, yeah, we're going to get promoted ahead of all these other guys because we're going to be going to this yeah. dangerous place. Right. Yeah, we'll be generals while these guys are still polishing uh, floors or whatever they said. Yeah. <laughs> Well, while the men celebrate their posting, Lee, Lee meets with Cadet Raider. Dozens of the pamphlets were found in Raider's possessions, as well as a letter from a member of the abolitionist party encouraging him to distribute them. Raider is disarmably discharged and ordered to leave West Point. I wonder if now is the time to, to make mention that there is a lot of politics throughout this movie. Um, and if you're watching it, you some of the themes may be slightly uncomfortable <laughs> and um let's see so i'm going to kind of take a breath so that we can edit this out because i'm not quite sure what i'm saying um do i mean but do we want to kind of disclaim it and say yeah we really should i realized that after we started getting the synopsis that we really needed to talk about what this movie's truly about there's so much stuff that i want to make sure we save to like discuss after we go through the synopsis but I guess we do need to preface some of it a <laughs> little bit. Yeah, I think it makes sense to say this movie is called The Santa Fe Trail. And on, from the, on the face of it, it is a Western adventure movie, but it is not. No. <laughs> it is a historical political movie about abolitionists. Uh, essentially, that's what it's about. Uh, and, and very little of it actually takes place even near the Santa Fe Trail. <laughs> so uh, we, uh, when we initially picked the, well, we'll get on to that later, but this is not a fun-loving Western starring Errol Flynn. This is actually like a historical drama. So if you haven't watched it yet and you start watching it, go into it with that knowledge. It'll help. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is like trying to make a statement by not making a statement. Yes. Politically. It is a it, movie about making your own decision about politics. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, yeah, it says a lot by not saying anything or or trying to like give everyone both sides even though it's kind of like that side really doesn't need a voice, but <laughs> it was trying to placate. I've read a couple different uh, articles and some reviews that – says that this film was really sort of trying to placate the the southerners by giving them sort of like a uh, an honorable reason to get into the civil war or something and it's like um okay yeah, there, <laughs> it's, it's odd and we talked briefly before we started recording about this is a podcast about film not Films, about politics. Exactly. So exactly. we're we're not going to launch into that side of things. We're going to gloss over some things Yes. Not because we have no opinions, but because that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> exactly. And you'll get a better grasp on kind of what this film deals with when you start hearing some of the clips. If you don't yes. watch the film beforehand, there are some of the clips that I'll be playing that will definitely give you the flavor, I suppose, of the uh, of the subject matter here. So all that being said, back to the film, I think. <laughs> yeah, whether we want to push that to the front or what. but No, I think that's fine. We do jump to graduation day at West Point. The men are all being called out. Again, another roll call for everybody. And their William diplomas presented. Cadet Martin Evans, Ohio. Cadet Armour Marlow, New Jersey. Cadet George Custer, Ohio. Cadet James Longstreet, South Carolina. 
Cadet Philip Sheridan, New York. Cadet J.E.B. Stewart, Virginia. Cadet John Hood, Kentucky. Cadet Robert Holliday, Kansas Territory. Cadet Jason Wood, Virginia. Cadet George Pickett, Back Virginia. Back my sister, Kit. Thought two Cadet years James in Boston Thompson, would make a lady out of you. Kentucky. So did I. It just popped out. Cadet William Keel, Ohio. I, I love that. You know, <laughs> the, uh, I thought two years in Boston would make you a lady. She says, I did too. <laughs> just <laughs> so did out. I. <laughs> I just popped right out of me. <laughs> I love how shocked she looks. She's like, she yeah. really didn't expect it. Yeah, exactly. No, she did a really great job. I, honestly, I, you know, the, the Haviland is second build in this movie, yet she's only in it maybe 30 minutes. But she actually does a really good job in that sort of, um, I don't want to say Eliza Doolittle kind of thing, <laughs> but you kind of get the feeling that that's kind of what they're going she, for. She's a tomboy, yeah. She's a tomboy, but she was sent to a, like a finishing school maybe or something. <laughs> yes. But it's one of these things that you can take the girl out of Kansas. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> but, <laughs> but she is fantastic in it. She's not, you know, she doesn't play this ditzy backwoods girl she's you know collected and she's gathered and she has really great comebacks but she also is uh she's going to roll up her sleeves and do whatever it takes and to heck with being refined well graduation wraps up with a speech and a song the whole time that everybody's singing custer and stewart who of course uh, noticed uh, cadet halliday's sister over there kit uh, they keep stealing glances over at her. <laughs> Worth mentioning, too, and I, again, this is just in the vein of the flavor of the movie. Oh, the, the speech for the graduation is given by Jefferson Davis, who later on, he at this time, is actually, in the year that this film is set, he really was the Secretary of um, War for the U.S., and he becomes the President of the Confederacy. So interesting, they keep throwing in all of these political people and it's like they're trying to follow history and we'll talk a little bit later about why they don't or how they don't well we next find ourselves on a train the santa fe trail is on the iron rails to kansas the movie says and nerves from there on frankly santa fe trail is like a MacGuffin to get people into the kansas territory (laughs) that's why it's there now, why they gave that movie the title, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because one thing th- happens there, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> on board the train, we get a bit of an info dump to catch us up on what's been going on uh, on this on this trail. Bob's been telling us about that railroad Santa Fe so long now, Mr. Holliday. Surprised to learn it hasn't even been built. Well, that's not our fault, Stuart. You can't build a railroad over blood-soaked ground like Kansas. Decent settlers won't use it. We're losing thousands of pioneers to the Oregon Trail. We heard about the raid at Osawatomie last week. What is the true situation out here, sir? Well, uh, Kansas is a territory and not a state. We are ready to join the Union, but the big question is whether we'll go in as a slave state or as a free state. On one side is most of Kansas pro-slavers, people who came from the South. On the other side are the abolitionists led by John Brown and his sons. Between those two elements, they've made Kansas a boiling pot of rebellion and massacres. That's why the Army sent you boys out here to Fort Leavenworth. Say, suicide station. It's quite an honor. <laughs> Excuse me, what is it? Surely. It's not a real good uh, 
It's, segue into information. It it's is not just quite a voiceover, but it's as close as you can get without being one. Yeah, to uh, to use maybe some vernacular of the time. There, uh, it was telegraphed. Yes. <laughs> uh, Jeb Stewart excuses himself and joins, and well, actually interrupts uh, George Custer, who has been chatting up Kit uh, across the aisle from them. Some other passengers asks the conductor what he plans on doing about the black family that is in the car. The conductor asks the white man who's with them, and he shows the conductor the tickets that say they can sit wherever they want. Uh, this doesn't satisfy the man, the men across the aisle there, and they force the man and the family out of the seats and lead them to the door. I think they had an idea that they were going to do something to them no matter what. But they <laughs> they finally said, look, hey, we're almost in Kansas. They're almost, we're almost across the state line. Got to remember that they're traveling through states. Some are slave states. Some are free states. Kansas territory is a territory trying to decide whether to be, you know, what which one of these. So I think these men had it in their head that they were going to do something to this family. And they needed to do it now before they went anywhere where it might be frowned upon. As they near the end of the aisle, the man that was with the family suddenly turns and guns down one of the men, then jumps from the train. And we find out that that man was Oliver Brown, one of John Brown's sons. Well, now we make it to Leavenworth sometime later. Mr. Halliday is planning his next leg of the trip. I guess, actually, this isn't Leavenworth. This is Kansas City. Kansas City, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mr. Halliday is planning his next leg of the railroad, and Kit is managing the workers and a wagon train for a scouting mission. She introduces us to our comic relief duo, <laughs> Wendy and Tex. This is this is kind of a cute moment. You get a little bit better of an idea of Kit and also her father. You know, she she tells him if you're going to spend your time paying attention to the railroad on paper, then I'm going to do the the actual work that needs to be taken care of. You kind of get this idea that she's been running things up until she was sent away to finishing school and she's back at it again. Right. And you're right. She's not in this movie very much, but even the little bit that she is, I end up she I think she's the most powerful character in it. And they really kind of carry on and tell about the struggle between the abolitionists and the slave states in her reactions to things. Yes, yeah, and we'll get to that later. Uh, there's a there's a, a scene in particular, quite a quite a ways of, up here, but um, there's but a scene is, in particular that really highlights it. Yeah, but this is the part where you get this idea. She's an intelligent, thinking woman, and she's capable. And and darn it, she's she's cute. She's fun. <laughs> we like <laughs> yes. her. Kit's awesome. <laughs> yeah, is this the uh, where we meet Wendy and Tex? Is this the moment when they're coming back from the stores? <laughs> yes. They come back the from mirror. the store. <laughs> yeah, they've apparently um, they've got a girl in, uh, I love in it. Santa Fe. We've got a girl in Santa Fe. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Wendy's sweet on her. Tex says, "Oh, I'm in, I'm engaged to her." <laughs> and they they both have gifts for Wendy's. Got one of them fancy French looking glasses, <laughs> which is a mirror. <laughs> for, then, for those of you and, younger than us. <laughs> And uh, Kit asks Tex, "Well, what did you buy her?" And he opens up the package, and it's a, it's a, what was like a, a corset. whalebone corset. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
which everyone gets a, quite a kick out of. And I like Wendy's line to text. like, you better hide that or start wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at Fort Leavenworth, our heroes get their assignments. George Custer and Jeb Stewart will lead a contingent of men that are going to go along and guard this, this wagon train to New Mexico. Stewart along and the Santa Fe Trail. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a guest star in this little segment called the actual name of the movie. <laughs> yes. Stewart and Custer both try to impress themselves on Kit one more time before they leave. Uh, she, while enamored with both of them, politely kind of pushes them off. <laughs> <laughs> and with a hearty song from the wagon train, the caravan heads off. Like you do. I mean, you can't just drive away in a wagon train without doing a sing-along. With no. a full band in the wagon, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like a whole full jug band sitting on top of the, of the wagon. The original bandwagon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we cut to the camp of John Brown and his small army, and we discover that Raider has signed on with them, and he's even delivering some new recruits. Oliver Brown rides in and tells his dad what happened on a train, and gets a good slap for it. John Brown calls him a coward. Apparently, tough love is in the Brown household. <laughs> yeah, he calls him a coward for leaving that you know, those that family on the train all by themselves. Oliver tells him it was it was them or me. Yeah, and he gets a slap for it. Yeah, it, this is an interesting moment because the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, John Brown's like, wow, he's right. Yeah, this guy shouldn't have just left this family to their fate. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, wow, John Brown's kind of a jerk to his kids. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Like, okay, no, he's right, but what? <laughs> Well, after a prayer from Mr. Brown, he and his men move out. On the road, Brown's younger son, Jason, shares some concern about their current mission. This is wrong, Father. We've never attacked a wagon train before. We aren't common highwaymen. You say we have a righteous cause, but this will bring the law down on us like a storm. We recognize no law but the law of God. You will do as I command. That wagon train that they are holding up is none other than the wagon train led by Custer and Stewart. The two parties meet, and Brown passes them off as a, I think he calls himself John Smith. Reverend Smith, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And tells uh, Tex that they are carrying some freight for him. He hopes he might be able to go ahead and collect it. It's just eight cases of Bibles. He has a receipt, so the men start uh, unloading the crates on and load them on the Browns wagon. While this is going on, Stuart and Custer talk among themselves that this Smith guy looks familiar, but they can't quite put a finger on it. When one of these crates is being unloaded, it falls and cracks open, revealing a load of rifles. That's not a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Stewart goes in to investigate, but Brown and his men draw their guns and signal for the rest of their men to come in. They finish unloading these crates, and Stewart and Custer are are reunited with Raider. Raider goes to shoot Stewart, but with some nice action with a whip from Tex, he is saved. Brown calls Raider off, and they and they leave. J- 
Jeb Stewart decides that they should take a chance and orders everyone to take cover and open fire. A gunfight and a chase ensues. They're getting away. No, they're not. We're going after them. Hey, wait a minute. The odd number is three to one. Well, if it makes you nervous, don't count them. Come on. Don't count them, yeah. (laughs) During this chase, Jason Brown, who was driving one of the wagons, falls behind and takes a bullet from Raider that was meant for Stewart. He collapses as Stewart jumps onto the wagon, which then crashes, flinging Jason to the ground. And a mighty impressive stunt, by the way. Yeah, uh, I thought that too, especially the second time watching it. Because the the thing crashes. I'm I'm guessing uh, Jason or the the prone figure of Jason may not have been an actual person, but there was an actual person holding onto those reins, who then gets dragged, dragged across the, the ground. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was a really good stunt. I mean, that that wagon just disintegrates when it hits the ditch. Mm -hmm. I'm like, holy cow. This is one of those movies that this is the kind of this is the kind of Hollywood. You watch these movies and you think, yeah, he died. Yeah, people probably. (laughs) That's exactly what I thought. I wonder how many stuntmen died making this movie. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Well, the rest of Brown's men escape. Uh, Jeb Stewart and George Custer see to the crashed wagon and the boy. I couldn't help it. I didn't do anything. All right, son. Nobody's going to hurt you. Who are you? Jason Brown. Brown? You one of John Brown's sons? Yes. Yes, but I never did anything. He made me go along. I never killed anyone. I swear it. I'm getting out. I'm quitting. You've got to take me with you. All right. Bring a horse up, George. Bring up the horses. Have to carry him back. The caravan heads back to Kansas City with the injured Jason. Stewart and Custer have a heart-to-heart. The boy's badly hurt. It's his father's madness really striking home now. Sheriff, there's a purpose behind that madness, one that can't easily be dismissed. George, you've seen the needle on a compass, haven't you? It's got a whole car to swing around in, but it always wobbles back to the north. What are you driving at? Just this. I've always known where your sympathies lay, but it never affected our friendship and it never will. But it isn't our job to decide who's right and who's wrong about slavery. Any more than it is John Brown's. I guess you're right, Jim. I'm sorry. Back in Kansas, Kit is watching over Jason, and Stuart questions the boy, trying to find out where John Brown might be. But the boy knows nothing, or isn't saying anything. But he does describe to Kit how ruthless his father has become, describing in detail how he executed five men at Potawatomi. Ooh, it took, I actually think I actually said it. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> that actual attack, again, is actual historical fact mm-hmm. uh, that that did happen. John Brown's men did kill uh, several men at that, that town. So there's a little bit of actual history that is played into the film. Outside, the army is all assigned to hunt John Brown and try to capture him. Jason, meanwhile, further questions his father's actions and finally confesses to Kit his father's location before passing out. Kit finds Stuart and tells him where to find Brown. At the house of Shubal Morgan. <laughs> yeah, at the house of, yeah, what Which, a name. I looked that up and actually, another slight historical inaccuracy, they actually have Shubal Morgan as a real person, but that was one of John Brown's aliases. So oh, it's interesting. interesting, like there's so much detail in it, the level, and then it's like 
but then it's wrong. <laughs> You're like, yes. they, they didn't even make up this name. It's really the name that he used, but it was actually the same guy. Well, that's interesting because it, it occurred to me that the, while they're at the house, you never meet anyone by the name of Morgan. Yeah, but they there is somebody cast as Shubal Morgan. Oh, is it? There, there is. And I could be I, I may be misspeaking. Maybe they did. And I, I missed it. They may. Yeah, they may have said his name, or if they did, I certainly never caught it. Fair enough. Hello, darling. How is it? It's very serious. I left the doctor with him. Poor little Deb. Jeb, he told me everything. The whole nightmare of his 15 years, even the place where his father is now. He said he wanted me to tell the soldiers. Where? Palmyra, at the house of a man named Shubal Morgan. Shubal Morgan, Palmyra. I wonder if that's the truth. Jeb, I'm frightened. That boy is crippled for life. And that man on the train. He died for a principle. And a man killed him for a principle. One of them is wrong, but which one? Who knows the answer to that, Kit? Everybody in America is trying to decide it. Yes, by words in the East and by guns in the West. But one day the words will turn into guns. Oh, Jeb, can't it be stopped now? Can't the slaves be freed before it's too late? It will be stopped when we hang John Brown. Then the South can settle our own problem without loss of pride at being forced into it by a bunch of fanatics. Oh, Jeb, what has pride got to do with human lives? Kit, the two things kind of come together down south. Can't pry them apart, not even with guns. Yeah, so there we just hear Kit, you know, she's questioning you know, the person who, you know, he died on the, he died for his principles, but the person that shot him had principles. Well, who's right? And part of, you know, a lot of me, well, pretty much all of me is thinking, the per the one that doesn't believe in owning slaves maybe has a, a foot up on this. <laughs> well, you know? and it, it's interesting. I think there this is this is you know the part you know as we mentioned this is the part where Kit is really embodying the question of the movie. But right. it's it's interesting. Uh, well, maybe we should go through that later. <laughs> but the, but she even says you know to to Jason at one point she says well. I think your father's principles are right, but he's doing it the wrong way. Yeah, what Kit says in this, what she just said in that clip is kind of what the entire movie is like trying to say. Without like saying the, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's, yeah. Okay, moving on, I maybe. I, <laughs> Stuart and Kit share a kiss just as Custer comes by. But even this doesn't really, uh, <laughs> Custer still isn't giving up hope that he might win Kit's heart. I don't know what you call that. <laughs> you walk up on on your competition with this girl. They've been kind of trying to vine for the same woman. You come up and the competition is firmly kiss locking the girl. Uh, like, yeah, well, there is a phrase for that. Hope you're saving some for me. <laughs> yeah, there is a phrase for what he's doing, but since this is nominally a family show, <laughs> right. he's uh, blocking the other guy's moves. We'll call it that. <laughs> Tex and Wendy show up, and they try to volunteer to join the army <laughs> so they can go and hunt Brown, too. Like you do. <laughs> <laughs> but, Where do we sign up? <laughs> but Stuart tells them to go and sleep it off, which actually kind of offends Wendy. I mean, the idea that he's just some sort of drunk. He, he hasn't had a drink since noon. Yeah, since at least noon. <laughs> <laughs> Kit goes inside to check on Jason, but the boy has died. He's obviously he's injured. He's been shot. He's been in a wagon 
accident. Oh yeah, I'm guessing there maybe some. There could have been some internal injuries that yeah, I you know. But, 19, but he's so in, passionate. In 1840, yeah, in 1845, probably maybe no one really knew about. Yeah. I, I got a kick out of that. The guy just got thrown from a wagon, and, and Jeff they, Stewart, when he comes up to him, just grabs him and pulls him into and his they arm. Stick him on the back of a horse behind another guy. <laughs> no stretcher. He just well, just stick him on the back of another horse. You know, had they just left him there in, in the field, he might have recovered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just feed him some soup and he'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so the boy has died and uh Kit is of course upset. She she she's quite she's sad. She's a decent the, person. So of yeah. course she's upset. Uh and Kit's father uh gives her some words of um I guess we'll call him comfort. Kit. Once when you were about this high, Tex Windy brought home a wolf cub with a broken back. You nursed it for weeks, but it finally died with his head in your lap. You cried for days, but it was just a wolf cub. It would probably have grown up to be a killer like his father. I, this, words of confusion is what I'd call him. I'm not sure the point he's getting at. <laughs> uh, well, honey, I remember one time when you had a sick pet and then you cried when it died. Okay, Dad, what's your yep. point? <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that back when I feel horrible. Right. <laughs> well, and also the message, too, I think he was trying to say is, yeah, the kid would probably have just grown up to be like his dad. Like, really? First of all, did you even talk to the kid <laughs> know, at all? Right? <laughs> I, this is, yeah. Well, you, Dad, go back to your train planning papers. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, back at the house of Shubel Morgan. We find Brown's gang unpacking more contraband weapons. Inside, Raider is trying to get paid. He was hired to help turn Brown's men into an army, but he hasn't seen a cent. Brown tells him he should just be willing to work for the cause, or he can leave. He only wants loyal men around. Another man in the room in the corner uh, clicks his gun through a few empty chambers to drive home what happens to men who aren't loyal. It's probably Shubal Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it. Raider tells him that he has proven his loyalty over and over, but he was promised money. Brown tells him he'll get it in time, but he is most concerned about Jason being in the hands of the enemy. With a rope around his neck, probably. <laughs> yeah, an innocent, an innocent man who's never fired a gun in his life, he, he says. Well, he says the Bible says an eye for an eye, so tomorrow they'll destroy Delaware Crossing. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. They have my son, so let's go kill a bunch of people. What? Exactly. Oh, dude, you just got to get your priorities straight. <laughs> wow. You're not going to save your son. Instead, you're going to go kill a bunch of people. Yeah, that's pretty. That's an extreme interpretation <laughs> of eye for an eye. Yeah. <laughs> we soon learn that Brown made good on his plan. The troops ride into the burned remains of the town of Delaware Crossing. Stewart offers some help to the survivors, but they turn it down. They'll take care of Brown themselves. Stewart tells them that he's been sent to quell any vigilante group, brown or otherwise. If they take up arms, it's not going to matter on which side they're fighting. He's going to have to do something about it. It doesn't matter to them, and they send the troops on their way. Brown discovers that the cavalry is on his trail and orders his men to start packing up. A man questions what about all the slaves that they have a that they have who uh, apparently they've freed, freed slaves, along the way yeah. yeah yes 
I was trying to find a good way of saying it without it sounding like they were just <laughs> like cl- trying slaves? to. Cl- no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. That's... I was like, uh, what about all the, the freed slaves that they've collected? Yeah, I they've mean, just you know. <laughs> acquired. They just, yeah, they've been. We've, we never saw any of this happen. It's just suddenly they have a barn full of of. of Slaves. Freed slaves. Uh, pr- presumably, yeah. they were bringing them all in on the train. But it does actually, I, it does mention, rather, I have looked up and these locations were, no, the location that he goes back to is actually known to have been highly involved in the Underground Railroad. So, yes, true. Again, yeah, I think history, the, um, but not well explained history. <laughs> right, you're right. Uh, Palmyra, I think, is Palmyra, the town they're yes. near, isn't it? Yes, and that that is apparently like the, the kind of like the uh, the end of the Underground Railroad. Yes. So yeah, it makes sense that they would be there. It's just that we've not seen them free any of these slaves. We don't know where they came from. Suddenly, there's just a whole bunch of people, and they don't know what they're going to do with them because they need to move out quick. Yeah, so they're just well, going to leave them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And uh, Brown goes in to tell them that uh, they're not going with them. My children, the hour of deliverance I promised you has come. I am leaving Kansas now to continue God's holy work. For Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as God had said unto him. And it was so that he did it by night. And when the men of the wicked city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. Please, Kevin Brown, what did that mean? What you gonna do with us? means that you are free, the first of many millions to whom I shall give freedom from slavery. Does, does just saying so make us free? How we go live, get food and shelter? There are many good people in Kansas who will give you work and protection. From now on, you must fend for yourselves, as other free men do. My work here is done. Glory, bless God, we're free. The captain kept his word, we're free. We're free, we're free. I mean, obviously there is, I believe, intended irony in this situation where this is a guy that has slapped his own son for leaving a family on a train, and here they're Mm -hmm. just going to ditch all these people in this barn. So a little bit of a double standard there. A little bit, yeah. Just uh, you're, you're on your own. There's lots of people here that'll help you. Just go find them. <laughs> Tons of them. They're sure. just hanging out. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's exactly how it works. Well, back at the troops encampment, Jeb Stewart decides that he is going to try to go into Palmyra undercover to see if we can if he can learn anything else about Brown and his men. And he recruits Tex and Wendy, who uh, caught up with them earlier, to help. Yeah, because even the... The guy, the, the general at the Leavenworth didn't want him anymore either. So <laughs> yes, they didn't have on. anything else to do, so they just <laughs> caught up with, the, with the, the troops. Well, just riding in town, Stuart, Wendy, and Tex hear talk that tells them what they would be up against. A man yelling to a crowd about how they came there to join Brown and, flight and fight slavers. Stuart asks Tex who he thinks he could talk to that wouldn't arouse suspicion. The town barber is the answer. And Stuart heads to get himself a close shave. (laughs) (laughs) In so many ways. (laughs) At the barber, uh, barber, quote-unquote, Doyle, I didn't get his sign. (laughs) The the sign outside his shop is barber, quote-unquote, Doyle. (laughs) Like, okay. Is that not really your name? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I don't know. Sorry, it just it just something that it, it jumped out at me when I saw the sign. It's like well, I'm guessing maybe maybe the barber shop was started by Doyle. Maybe, <laughs> but uh, Urban Dictionary, which is the key source for all things English, says oh, sure. that Doyle is an insult, as in to imply somebody than of less than average intelligence. <laughs> so, I don't know if it meant the same thing in 1940, but it might. Or in 1854. Or, well, yeah. <laughs> the, the movie being made in 1940, who knows? It was one okay, of those historical well, accuracies that they don't explain. <laughs> so maybe there was a, deed, a reason for the word Doyle to be in quotes. Maybe. So there you go. <laughs> this being well, a drunk guy from the train. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, Stuart ties his horse outside and heads in. Pretty good-looking horse for this part of the world. Yeah. Kansas is all right for men and dogs, but it's pretty hard on women and horses. <laughs> Say, look at that brand. That's an army horse. Maybe just bought him from somewhere. Oh, they don't sell him. Nobody rides that brand but a soldier. You keep your eye on him till I get back. Stewart starts with some small talk with the barber, who, as Lydia says, happened to have been on the train to Kansas, uh, but he was very drunk at the time. <laughs> very drunk. Yes. He, 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 he's sure that he recognized Stewart's face. Uh, but he says, I, I, of course, I was really drunk. And Stewart's like, well, there you go. That, that guy probably had two faces. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're talking, but who should happen to walk in but none other than Raider? Dun-dun-dun. Captured, Stuart is taken to John Brown. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. The Army has orders from Washington to bring you to trial. I hope that if I came face-to-face with you first, a lot of unnecessary bloodshed might be avoided for your men and mine. Were you innocent enough to think that I would surrender myself to you without a fight? I hope that you might consider yourself innocent enough to do that. Half of the people in America believe in your theory. A lot of them even condone your methods. That'll guarantee you a public trial. I'm not on trial, but the nation itself. Are you too stupid and blinded by a uniform to see what I see? A dark and evil curse laying all over this land. A carnal sin against God. Can only be wiped out in blood. But why in blood? The people of Virginia have considered a resolution to abolish slavery for a long time. They sense that it's a moral wrong. And the rest of the South will follow Virginia's example. All they ask is time. Time. Time? For 30 years I've waited for the South to cleanse its soul of this crime. Since childhood I have been possessed of the fire of correcting this wrong. I tried peaceful agitation. As God is my witness I tried. Peaceful means failed long ago. Now I shall force a decision by bringing both sides into armed conflict. Letters, words, talk, the time has ended for that. Strength and action I wanted now. Not a voice crying in the wilderness, but a David armed with the power and the glory. Well, after Brown's speech, Stuart tells Brown about Jason. Brown takes it pretty well, actually, and says that Jason has paid for the country's sin with his life. He tells Stuart to make peace with his maker. Father of the Year Award, number two. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. come on, guy. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, it just kind of... Um, maybe we should talk about it a little <laughs> bit later. Maybe we need to talk about all the characters a little bit later, I guess. Back at town, 
Tex and Wendy question the barber themselves and find out that Stuart was taken by Oliver Brown and his men. At the Morgan house, Stuart is being prepared for hanging. As one of the men go to put a noose around his neck, Stuart grabs the man's pistol and shoots a couple men down and manages to barricade himself in the barn. Remember that barn from before? Same barn. (laughs) Same barn. It isn't long before he, find, before he finds himself surrounded and out of ammo. Uh, he actually does manage to fire about 12 shots from a revolver that can <laughs> maybe hold eight at the most. <laughs> and he also discovers three of Brown's uh, refugees in the loft that didn't leave with the rest of the, of the group. While the gang is firing in at him, he gets winged in the arm and a lantern gets knocked over, starting a fire. Yeah, he doesn't actually do a lot of... doesn't really help this family very much because they're up in the loft and you know, everyone's shooting through the windows and through the door at him and he's like, well, get down here if you don't want to get killed. Yeah. Like, no, actually, I'm thinking he's better off up there. There, there is that moment. And, but, and yes, I totally thought the same thing. I thought, I'm not sure down there is a better option. But then once the barn catches on fire and then, you know, presumably the loft catches on fire and the hay that's in the That's loft, true. That's I suppose true. at that point. And, and he does make an effort to try and kind of, gu- like, guide them out of the way of the flames. Well, the cavalry arrives, literally. Literally. <laughs> Brown's son, Oliver, gets shot and killed almost immediately. Again, Brown shows the slightest bit of like, oh, yeah. I think one of his other men said, oh, Oliver's dead. Should should we stop fighting or something? Or should we keep going? And like, until the blood leaves my body, we'll fight. I'm like, all right, doesn't matter. Just keep going. While Brown's men are busy with the attack, Stuart manages to ram the barn door down and escape the barn. Custer tries to go after a retreating Brown, but he returns empty-handed. Figuring Brown is done for, with his army nearly all killed and with little to no weapons and ammunition, Stewart thinks that this is the last they will see of him. Custer isn't so sure. This brings us to about an hour and 12 minutes, and believe it or not, you still have about 40 minutes to go. This is a long movie. <laughs> this is one of the longer films that we have watched in a long time. And at this point, it's kind of one of these... It just ends up being like the good breaking spot. Because if I kept going with the synopsis from here, I kind of have to finish the film. I mean, yeah. this is like... Start of the third act, I guess. is pretty. This is a hard end of one act yes. and start of another. Yes. Almost start of another movie. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, we need to talk about some of these characters here and um, maybe we should talk with uh, with Massey as John Brown. Um, you can tell, I mean, they picked, they cast this guy really well. I don't, I'm not a historian. I don't know a whole lot. I've only kind of done like the, the, the wiki dive, you know, in doing <laughs> research for this. And but you got a feel feeling that John Brown has to be someone that has to be either kind of very personable or someone that could draw a lot of people to him mm-hmm. uh, and fairly easily. And casting uh, Massey, who has this fantastic voice, and the way he talks, you are either you're either scared of him or you're inspired mm-hmm. by him. Yes, depending on what he's saying. So. 
fantastic casting, and that's how this character kind of comes across in this film. That's how John Brown comes across in this film. Yes. Depending on which prayer he decides to pull from the Bible, <laughs> yes. or 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 where he decides to go with his speech, you are, like I said, inspired or in fear of the man. I, I guess we have to approach it strictly from a film standpoint. Um, this is a character that you really don't like. I mean, no. it's like they go to really great lengths to make a guy who is standing up for the most obviously right moral, you know, stance as right. unlikable as possible, and they really achieve it, I think. Yes, they absolutely, <laughs> despite that this is the guy that wants to end slavery, he is still the villain of the film. He wants to do because it of the killing actions. everybody else. Yeah, yes. because of the actions he's taking. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And so from that standpoint, if they're trying to cast somebody that you know is, is powerful and is also really dark and scary... This Raymond Massey, especially in black and white, there are points in this movie where his eyes, his mm. they just look completely black. And yeah. I don't know if that's uh, intentional on the part of the cinematographer or if that is just how he happens to look in those moments. But there are moments in this film where he is full on scary. And mm -hmm. he looks scary, and, you know, he fills that part perfectly. And I think that's kind of what they're pushing for is to say, you know, it, it, well, I have to I have to assume at some point in his history there was this guy, but he was really creepy, and even though he was right, <laughs> he was doing it wrong, and this is the right. story of that guy. And from that standpoint, they it's, it's created very strongly and effectively, and they did a good job of it. The best villains are the ones who don't think they're doing anything yes, wrong. Yes, and that's exactly who this guy he is. He truly believes he has right on his side. And and he's he'll get into it at certain points in the movie where he's the chosen of God. And we've all heard scary people say stuff like that. This is, <laughs> you know, you believe him when he's saying it in this movie. So he's extremely powerful in this role. Yeah, absolutely. And, and makes for one of the more interesting characters. Mm -hmm. Now, the only other character that I found maybe a little bit more interesting was actually the character that has no historical, uh, I'm trying basis. to think of the word. Yeah, yeah, he has no historical basis, is Raider. Mm -hmm. I really like Raider. Again, you know, he's the villain, or he's villainous, but he's one of those people who... He's a little bit different than he's a little bit different than Brown. Brown truly thinks he's good and doing the right things. I think Raider is a person who knows that he's a bad person, but he does good things or tries to do good things because he doesn't want other people to know that he's a bad person. Hmm, interesting. I kind of just, I think early on they even mentioned that he's got those pamphlets, but the letter says he'll be paid to hand them out to sympathetic soldiers, to people hmm. that are sympathetic to the cause. So early on, I got the impression that he is purely mercenary. And hmm. and he, you are correct. There's not a historical character that I'm aware of with that name. I, he's, I think he's the only one in here. He's one of only a couple of people that don't even have a last name in the movie. But... There is a oh, Raider is his last name. Yes, I don't remember yes. his first. There name. is no first name, at least as far as I could tell from the credits and 
what I could find. There's no first name. But there was actually a, a British guy whose name I can't think of that did fill his role, especially in later on they follow through the Harper's Ferry attack, which is where this is leading in the third act. There's no mm-hmm. no surprise there. This is history, guys. And there was actually a guy who was there and assisting John Brown in some of these things. And there are some actions that Raider takes later that are very that are actually extremely similar to oh, what this other person did. So I wish I could think of the guy's name. I I found it and then I didn't write it down. Right, but he now was you've lost it. British, just totally randomly, has nothing to do with the story as far as I'm aware. But there was Raider does fill I think probably a couple of different roles of different people that may have been involved in various points of this whole saga of John Brown. Well, that would make sense. And that would make sense from a kind of a cinematic standpoint where you wanted to tell those aspects of the stories, but you've already got this huge cast. Yes. You don't want to muddle it up any more than you already have. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you do a little bit of shorthand. Uh, but, yeah, there's just moments from this that this guy, you know, he doesn't believe in slavery. He is offended by, you know, the slave-owning Stuart and his family. Uh, He's willing to side with Brown. I almost got the impression, too, from early on that he's almost more offended that Stewart's family is wealthy slave owners. Mm, Possibly, It's not just that they're slave owners. It's that they're wealthy slave owners, and that makes him sick, you know? Yes. Yeah, he he maybe is kind of one of those people that had to pull himself up from the bottom Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Still trying to, even. Yeah, Yeah. I mean— Maybe him going to West Point, him joining the army was kind of like his only way out of whatever version of a slum you had in in the 1850s. And he is, while being, like I said, villainous, he has a a sort of, he has a sort of set of code of morals. Yes. And he also has like a a, a strange sense of honor. Mm -hmm. And he was literally dishonored because of Jeb Stewart. Mm Mm-hmm. And that really bugs Gets him. Gets his goat. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and he, he's played, we didn't mention him, you know, when we are talking about the cast. He's played by Van Heflin, who's not, I think, a well-known name, but... Wasn't one I recognized. But he, his face, you've seen him in something. He, he wasn't in an exhaustive... Well, I suppose if you've seen Westerns, you've seen him in something. He doesn't have an exhaustive list of parts, but he looks like a couple of other guys, but he's been in a lot of things. Um, he was in the original 310 to Yuma. Uh, he was in Shane, which is... Maybe it's just my dad loves Westerns, but, <laughs> but there are a bunch of them in there. You know, uh, 1948, The Three Musketeers. He's been in loads of movies, but he always kind of seems to get this character that's a little gritty and mm-hmm. that you kind of don't like him. He's smarmy is a word that a friend of mine would use. Right. He's kind of smarmy, but he is perfect for this for this particular role. Oh, absolutely. He's supposed to be kind of smarmy. Yeah, and he fits that whole kind of Western cowboy look. He I mean, does. he looks very natural in that in the hat, in yes. the clothes. Where a lot of the other cast, like Errol Flynn, it, he looks he's natural in his pretty. like uniform. He's yes. pretty. He's very pretty. He's very he, he, pretty. in his uniform. It kind of like okay, that sort of works. But when he goes undercover and he's riding in the town, he, it's, he's yeah. like, you look like you should be Roy Rogers. <laughs> yes, you know, he's he just too white. clean. Yes, yeah. exactly. He needs a little scruff, and he does not have a hint of scruff through this whole movie. (laughs) 
Yeah, he's just he, he's just too pretty for the part. Yes. Um, well, for for the part of a cowboy, for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I just I really found Raider interesting, uh, just because of his version of morals and honor mm-hmm. that you know he finds and how he is offended. He's kind of an anti-hero. What he finds, yeah, he is a little bit. Yes, this is exactly the kind of character that in other films would be the guy that you would follow in a film. Mm-hmm. And yes, he would do all the wrong things, he's, but for the right reasons. He's Deadpool. Yeah, <laughs> he's Deadpool. <laughs> he's the original Deadpool. <laughs> He's he's Deadpool. He's uh, he's Django. Uh, you know, yes, he's absolutely the antihero. Very good. <laughs> the Jeb Stewart, Errol Flynn. Yeah, I mean the camera loves Errol Flynn. Yeah. You can definitely see the camera's where not Errol... the only one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it it I I feel like they chose it, and I could be wrong about this. I can't. I have no idea. I would talk to anybody that made this movie. But I felt like they chose him because he's so likable and they were really trying to find somebody that could play a wealthy southern slave owner that was not offensive. Um, yes, I think so. That's the, kind of that's the only way I can describe it because he's not southern at all. He's, <laughs> he's got no opinions that he voices. It, he almost almost doesn't say anything one way or the other about slavery in the entire movie he he, at one point he does make comments about it but he's very careful not to the whole film uh dances around the fire and uses and uses the fact that these men are in the army as being impartial and and that was kind of one of the things that i was thinking too is early on and especially when they're graduating from west point my dad went to west point got a shout out to him but (laughs) there and the thing that they're really push through the speeches and through uh, when they're being disciplined for fighting everything over and over it's drilled into them your place as a soldier is not to have a political opinion your place as a soldier is to do what's right for the country is to to defend the country and that's it and so the movie intentionally puts itself in a place where you're not supposed to dislike people from the south you're not supposed to dislike them because of where they are from and you're not supposed to like them because of where they are from you are in 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 a way it's very pushy about it they Mm -hmm. want you to make up your mind about whether or not slavery is right which right and so you have people talking about it and thinking about it and and taking actions about it but at no point does anybody stare down the lens of the camera, not that I can think of, and say to the audience, you should feel this way or you should think this way. It's like they are trying really hard to prov- provide opposite sides of the argument, but almost flipping the character that you would stereotypically see as presenting that side. So from yes. you've got John Brown, who's a horribly evil man that is very anti-slavery. And then you have Errol Flynn, who's this great-looking, nice, calm guy who nominally at least owns slaves, but he's not offensive at all. And he doesn't, you know, he's not trying to hurt people or kill people. And he just wants people to have the right to choose. So it's, it's a weird movie. It's just yeah. a weird movie. Yeah. 
it it hits you over the head by not making a statement. Yes. Yeah. You keep expecting <laughs> them to say, well, you know, these are really the good guys. And, you know, this guy's going to go do this thing, which is going to, you know, uh, kind of save him in the end or, you know, and, and I don't think you ever get that. You don't, in my opinion, you don't get to the end of the movie and go, oh man, that guy just really redeemed himself or wow, that guy turned out to be really different than I thought he would be. Cause through the whole thing, the people are just who they are. Mm -hmm. There's not any real change in it. And even the part where you've got Kit talking about, you know, is this guy right? Or is this guy right? You know, is, do the actions you take about your morals make it better or worse to have those morals? She still doesn't make up her mind. She doesn't no. say. She just is like, well, which one is it? And yeah. and it's almost like those mo- those uh, videos in the 1950s and 60s where it turns to the camera and says, what, what should Billy say? Yeah, what would you do? <laughs> and it's like, and then, oh, I almost want to talk about the end of it because, oh, but I'm not going to. <laughs> well, there, there is a moment, too, in this film. I don't know if I glossed over if it was sometime after I stopped the synopsis. There is, I think it comes afterwards, there's a, 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 a scene with a, a fortune teller. Yes, that's later Or, on. you know, an old Indian woman or yeah, something like that. Yeah. And she kind of tells all the men that they will soon, you know, fight, but they're going to be fighting on different sides. Yes. That there's, you know, and they all look at each other and then, oh, oh they laugh it <laughs> off. Ridiculous. Oh, us fight, fight against each other? other? That's crazy. <laughs> We're all friends. And so, yeah, it's another one of these moments where this film is definitely saying something, but not. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a very bizarre, tonally, the film is very bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, Errol Flynn. I, I I like what you were you were saying. He was cast because he is so, you know, perfect. inoffensive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And I think Olivia De Havilland. I think was a little bit more of a, a stunt casting. Like, oh, we have Errol Flynn. Get Olivia De Havilland because mm-hmm. all their films are popular. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> agree with that, and that yes. is what I thought because although there is an element of romance in this movie. This is mm-hmm. not a romantic movie. No. But no, I... Don't be fooled by the synopsis. <laughs> I think we were... No. All the little brief synopsis that you see is like, oh, two, two, uh, how they put it? two army men, uh, you know, vibe for the attentions of, of Olivia de Havilland. Yeah. And, 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 and meanwhile... Oh, and, they, and they're <laughs> looking for John Brown. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and there is... No, <laughs> it, honestly, in the, if you go to IMDb, it says nothing about abolitionists in the synopsis there is not a word about slavery in it and the whole movie is about slavery and Mm -hmm. so i i felt like and i thought this before that they cast them so that they would have trailer shots of them together to get people in they got they wanted butts in the seats and that's the only reason they have a woman in this movie at all (laughs) yeah no i agree with that entirely And I have to believe that the political climate of of the nineteen of nineteen forty was just so different for this to have grossed as high of an income as it did. Um, people now, well, I, it's so hard. It's a little hard to talk about this without talking about politics. Um, yeah. Let's just say the the political climate today would never allow this movie to be released. Certainly not the way that it's portrayed. 
Um, yeah, yeah, definitely not. The not social with this, climate. Yeah. Yeah, not with this total. We're going to stand on the on the fence through the entire film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would definitely never never happen. No. So it's a yeah, it's it's an interesting movie to watch. Uh, I can recommend three or four others. I would absolutely recommend before it if you want to just watch Errol Flynn and Olivia Tavlin. Yes, you know I've yeah, you know I've never seen Adventures of the Adventure of Robin Hood. Oh my goodness, this is a movie I grew up on as a kid. Yeah, I, that and Captain Blood over and over. And I mean, I'm not. Oh. I don't have a lot of Errol Flynn in my movie. You know, well, watching history. You're not a girl. No, that's why. <laughs> but I was a boy that grew up, you know, swashbuckling adventure just seems like it should be right up the alley. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe I've seen this film when I was younger. It was I'm sure it was on TV a ton. Yes. Well, and I, maybe I've seen it. And I just don't recall. Well, and we had Captain Blood and the Adventures of Robin Hood and the Black Swan probably all on the same VHS. So you just yeah. pop that in and you're good for six hours. <laughs> You know, if you've got the kids over for the weekend, oh, we'll put this one on. You know, there's there's nothing dirty in it. There's no nudity. It's great for a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old to sit down and watch for six hours. So it could just be, I just grew up on it. Before we go, we should talk, what, what did you think of Ronald Reagan? This is the first time I've seen Ronald Reagan in an actual film. You know what's interesting about Ronald Reagan in this movie? Nothing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he, they threw him in there to create a little bit of tension between Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, and it doesn't work at all. No. Um, he's he's nondescript. He's yeah. he's it, very. It, it came ta- it came down to Jeb Stewart needed somebody to talk to in, exactly from, uh, in the scenes. Right. That's exactly right. And it right. might as it might as well be this it, this new guy yes, Ronald Reagan. It could have been. Anybody. It couldn't Anyone. have been Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He's too good looking. And, you know, they picked a guy that was just kind of, you know, pleasant and that wasn't irritating and that Jeb would have somebody to talk to. I think you're exactly right. But the, char- the character itself was completely unnecessary to the film, which sounds harsh probably, but it's absolutely true in my opinion. <laughs> so an interesting film. And one that we unfortunately need to put a rating on, I yeah. guess. <laughs> well, it, again, I want to say, I, well, or I don't know if I've said it yet, but I'm the one that came across this movie, and I went, Errol Flynn in a Western? We should watch this. This yeah. is not Errol Flynn in a Western. There's <laughs> n- almost nothing Western about this movie at all. So, uh, yeah, d- definitely a, a bait and switch. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, this Just is definitely. <laughs> we've got a bad history with that with some of our last films we, where we get pulled in by the brief do. synopsis that it's mentioned. But if oh, you, here's this title. <laughs> it's a it's a western and it's like a romantic. Oh, and this uh, person's in it. Let's do that. Yeah, it's a romance. It's got all these great actors. This is a fun film. This is because it was a film that Warner Brothers had. It was made in in forty, and then in the sixties they. Didn't for for whatever reason renew the copyright. I wonder why. And that's why it felt. And <laughs> the political climate. Well, of it's the almost 60s. kind of weird. Why? I was thinking about that. When you've got a film with this kind of message, did they really think of the '60s? Well, if we don't renew the copyright, it'll just disappear. Who knows? And because I, honestly, honestly, just the opposite. The reason this film still exists, I think, today, 
is because it went in the public domain. Mm -hmm. Had they renewed the copyright and just put it on their shelf and never, ever spoke of it again. Nobody would have watched it, yeah. This film would have just disappeared. Here at Orphan Entertainment, it's public domain, and it stars this powerhouse <laughs> yes! of Flynn, De Havilland, Reagan, names. and Massey. We're not going to not watch yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you guys are wondering how we choose the films that we review, we close our eyes and point. It's not quite that arbitrary, <laughs> but we, you know, we go through a the list. The digital of, version of yeah, that. It's yeah, it's the digital version of that. We, you know, we go through and we look through a bunch and say, what about this one? What about this one? And then we pick one that we think, oh, that one could be great. And sometimes we just don't get great ones. <laughs> they look great. <laughs> if you pull up the poster of this, it looks phenomenal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. A romance with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland and oh, there's an army thing and a guy riding a horse. It's so exciting. It's just not like that at all. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. So alright, so let's, let's, let's rate this thing. Um, again, not rating politics, not rating <laughs> yes. the message. I don't know. Rating <laughs> How you know how important is this film to see the quality of the film? <laughs> Speaking of quality too, um, it's available on Amazon and it's available, of course, you know, like in YouTube in that archive, I believe. All the quality on these films are pretty good. Excellent I mean, this is quality, really nice quality there, actually. And yeah, I didn't see some... any real difference between. I watched the one that I downloaded from. Uh, I downloaded from somewhere. And I watched the one that was on Amazon. There's no real difference between them. Mm -hmm. So you're pretty safe no matter where you find it. I was surprised with the clarity of some of it. Because, again, for a movie that probably nobody ever would have watched if it hadn't gone into public domain, it is in excellent quality. No sound issues. There's some – it's so clear in some parts that you actually notice the camera movements, which a lot of the time you're, you know, we're struggling so hard to just see what's going on that you don't even notice what they're doing with the camera. But um, from that perspective, it's, you know, top, brilliant, definitely yes. five ovals. But that's not the only part that we're reading. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this is a film that I, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at like, this is one of those movies that it's either a two or it's a four, you know? <laughs> It's so which really is it? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to fall on the low end. I'm only going to give it a two. And it, I feel bad because... I, well, I don't know if, I, if feeling bad is the right term. It, I, it's because of this weird... We're going to not make a statement statement that this movie makes that I think is what annoys me. And then to have... The, but I guess I, it feels odd to give a film that stars all these really great actors who do a really great job such a low rating mm-hmm. but there's just nothing terribly special about it to warrant telling someone oh you have to see this mm-hmm. plus the length i think for a film like this i kind of wish it was a little shorter mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a, a chunk to try to a big bite <laughs> to try to yeah about halfway through i checked the the time scroll and went what <laughs> oh i thought it was almost over nope right <laughs> if you could have actually uh, dumped like the the Havlin character you could have cut a half an hour yeah. out of the film <laughs> but she was probably the most entertaining part of it well she was <laughs> definitely up there. one of them yeah <laughs> well i i'm not far off with you on that one i originally thought a three um, mm-hmm. It's 
you know, solid filmmaking. It's not bad acting. Nothing stands out with horrible dialogue. Um, there are definitely some moments with John Brown where it really draws you in, where he's talking, and, and he just has such a presence that, you know, you, you get caught up in it. And, you know, it's a, it's a movie about a historical point in the country that makes it kind of interesting. Um, you know, you can tell that they put a lot of research into it. In 1940, they didn't have Google. They didn't have Wikipedia. <laughs> so one thing that struck yeah. me is somebody went to a lot of effort to find out information about this. And they didn't get everything right, but in an era where literally computers basically didn't exist at all, and they would have had to be writing letters and, you know, making phone calls and, you know, trying to find out the information they needed to get the semblance of a historical, accurately historical story. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit impressive that they, they, they managed to do as much as they did. You know, they're obviously they were hoping to make a statement about how all, you know, prior to the Civil War, you had all these guys that were just guys until they picked a side and then they were enemies. So right. there, there's a lot of it, you can you can read a lot of interest into this movie. That said, there's. It, it's. I think you're right. I think there are two completely different movies, and they shoved a romance into a historical drama to try and draw a crowd. And mm -hmm. from and from that perspective, they really degraded it, in my opinion. As much as I really enjoy Olivia De Havilland, I really like Errol Flynn. The romance in this movie is completely useless. There's no purpose for it, in my opinion. And so they just dilute the story of the film and make it really long and kind of hard to watch. So it can't be better than a three. It just can't. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I think there's... It's, it's a hard question. I, I'm inclined to give it a three because regard, it, if we're judging it not based on our political opinions, it's, I think it's very easy to give it a poorer score because of our ingrained moral stat, stats, statuses. That's what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say. And so I think <laughs> it's very easy to say this film is hard to watch because it's irritating and yes. and so I'm going to give it a lower score, but it may not. I think as a movie, it doesn't really. I I am arguing against myself giving it a lower score. <laughs> so I I think I'm really comfortable with the three. I think that you know there's solid direction as far as a director goes. There's solid direction. I think they didn't really. They just tried to put too much in to a movie without saying too much. And it, yeah. it kind of exploded in their faces. <laughs> yeah, so. it seems like a lot of effort went into a film that, in the end, doesn't really say anything. It doesn't. And so there, there, are, there is at least one um, performance in this film that's worth seeing, and that's Raymond Massey. Um, yes. I, you know, I think it's interesting. There, there is some historical interest to I had no idea about John Brown until I watched this movie and then started doing a little bit of research. So there's something to be said. It's interesting to watch it. I think that they 
I think they tried really hard not to dilute the historical facts too much. And from that perspective, I think they probably did all right. And so I, I would say, you know what, if it's something where you're interested in U.S. history and you'd like to see a movie about a violent abolitionist, I think you should see this one. <laughs> I yeah. think it's a good one oh, to watch. Yeah. And, and trust me, <laughs> and, and, and please let me be clear that my you know, view, like, that you're right, the John Brown character, I think, is probably the most historically accurate. Mm-hmm. There is no way you could make him the good guy. Yes. Uh, regardless you of what, really his, what his beliefs were. Regardless that, you know, oh, yes, he was against slavery. Yeah, he also just <laughs> he kills murdered yes, dozens of people, maybe women and children. I don't know about Delaware Crossing. I don't know I don't how either. historically accurate that was. But that's a that was a town yeah. that he that was burned to the ground. You know, it was not a town of just men. In the movie, you, <laughs> I mean, he's a total a-hole. So. Right. <laughs> but, yes, he is an, an incredible actor, and it, it is a it is really neat to see him take on this role Mm -hmm. i guess but no you 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 could never be portrayed as a good guy the the historical john brown (laughs) so i think i think you know from that standpoint if you're interested in seeing you know something historical to do with this era i think it's a probably a really good movie to watch i don't there's not any there are very there are few major flaws and one of them is with them trying to add interest to the story with the romance. That's not to say that I didn't enjoy the interactions of the characters. I think that really was my favorite part because that is the lighthearted part of it is these two guys vying for the affections of this intelligent and witty woman. But um, it really has nothing to do with the story. So I, I, I'm happy with a three on this. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now that I've over explained it way too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think maybe we should go ahead and put this to bed. This is going to be a. I knew this was going to be a long episode. We had so much information uh, even up front before we even movie. got into the film. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I knew the film itself was going to take a while to get through, just because of the the subject at hand and because of the you know the actors that we had to uh, to deal with here. Mm-hmm. So uh, I certainly want to thank everyone for sticking with us through this whole show. I'm hoping yes. you're hearing this now. I hope you stuck with it. Yeah, if you have, yay. <laughs> Nobody says you have to listen to it all at once. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> Maybe I should have said that in the beginning. <laughs> we'll add another disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. But I certainly thank you for listening. Uh, thoughts and suggestions, email feedback, you know, please, orphanedentertainment at gmail.com or come to the Facebook group and uh, put your comments there. Anything we get from you is uh, much appreciated. Oh, and I was going to say, and, you know, we kind of explained a little bit how we choose films. If you know of an uh, orphaned film that you think we should take a look at, let us know that. We're always looking for new ones to review. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was just going to say, uh, we did get an email from somebody. Uh, Graham Donald wrote us an email, uh, and he says that he's, I've enjoyed the episodes of the podcast I've listened to so far. He said, I'd like to suggest the 1932 film Midnight Warning for a future review episode. It's available on Internet Archive, so I'm assuming it's in public domain. And I did double-check. It is indeed. Oh. Should be good on that. As far as the film goes, it's an odd little noir exercise with some dodgy acting and a plot with quite a few holes in it. (laughs) So while it doesn't sound like it's a good film, it sounds like it might be a fun film. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, just because uh, 
Graham was probably one of the uh, first folks to really send an email suggesting a film. I think we should absolutely do that. I am, I think that sounds like a great idea. All right, so tune in next month for 1932's Midnight Warning. So that'll that'll be a good time. And thank you very much, Graham, for suggesting it yes, and thank emailing you. us. And and uh, I'm glad you're enjoying the shows. So that is going to do it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening, and we will talk to you in a month. Bye, everybody. Bye.